Today's text is from Genesis chapter three, verse one, and John chapter nine, verse one through five. Please follow along as I read the passage aloud for us. Genesis chapter three, verse one. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? And John chapter nine, verse one through five. As he went along, he saw a man blind from birth. His disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Neither this man nor his parents sinned, said Jesus, but this happened so that the works of God might be displayed in him. As long as it is day, we must do the works of him who sent me. Night is coming when no one can work. While I am in the world, I am the light of the world. This is God's word. Let's uh, sit with that text for just a second in silence as we, um, as we pray. As you probably um, intuited, both of those scriptures had to do with uh, kind of our big questions in life, what's wrong with the world? Why so much suffering? things like blindness and, um, and beyond that. And so, Lord, we sit with these big questions and we ask that you would be with us. We turn to you, Lord, once again. We come to you in our incompleteness that you might complete us, in our brokenness that you might make us whole, in our disease that you might heal us. Help us, God, to open the depths of who we are to you. And for all you are going to do this morning, we give thanks. In Jesus' name, amen. I've been uh, compelled by the, the news uh, over the past few weeks, um, especially in our uh, area, in the Bay Area, with banks collapsing and um, floods, markets failing, uh, and war globally and even aliens and UFOs in the actual news, <laughs> like night, nightly news UFOs. I have a lot to say about that, but not, not this Sunday. <laughs> so we, I, I, don't, I don't think we come to church suspending the real world in order to fantasize about living in a different one for an hour and a half on a Sunday morning. This is not a Netflix binge where we just kind of mindlessly zone out for an hour and a half. I hope it's not, anyway. I think we carry into church our real questions to the problem of suffering and evil and pain as we enter into this room. And since we're in a topic on the Bible and biblical literacy, we should ask the question under the rubric of biblical literacy. So that's what I want to do this morning. I want to look at evil and the problem of evil and the suffering that evil brings. But this question, the problem of evil, and suffering is a very scary question. A lot of us might be afraid to ask this question because of where it might lead us. I think there is a real fear among Christians or followers of Jesus to, if you go too far down the rabbit hole, you might deconstruct your faith and leave the faith altogether. And there's a lot of people that are really afraid of that. I don't want to do that. I don't want to even like 
open that door to the possibility of that. Or if you open this door, go down this road, what if you find out that God is not powerful or maybe even worse so, God is not all loving? Several years ago now, a musical artist by the name of David Bazan wrote an album that became like a breakup album with God. He was in a band before that called Pedro the Lion. I remember coming to faith and really loving this band. Uh, there wasn't, you know, Christian music has, has seen some hard times. And, um, <laughs> and then I really found this band to be very, very, very good. And um, he did his own album called uh, Curse Your Branches. And a lot of the album deals with the creation account in Genesis and asked God a lot of serious questions. Questions that ultimately, ultimately led him to leave the faith over to completely deconstruct before that was like a thing in our society. In one song called When We Fall, he sings this. When you set the table and when you chose the scale, did you write a riddle that you knew they would fail? Did you make them tremble so they would tell the tale? Did you push us when we fell? And here's a question that I think comes up when we start to read through the Bible and really think through the Bible, a question that all other questions hang on. If God made the world, why is it set up like this? It, in Bazan's words, this whole thing, is it rigged? Did God push us when we fell? Couldn't he have created a world that's different than the one that we're living in? I mean, why is there so much evil and suffering in a world that God created? If God is really responsible for this created world, why is there so much evil in it? Why does the thing we all want and need in California, rain, end up killing people and wiping out entire livelihoods and make us sad because we feel like we live in Portland right now? <laughs> We're like, we pay too much money to live in Portland. <laughs> why does, where's the lie? Why does, why does cancer wither away Young lives and months leaving behind broken families and broken hearts? Why are children trafficked in sex trade? Why do war crimes still happen in a world advanced and as progressed as ours? Why do terrorist groups kidnap children and torture them and burn them alive and use them as suicide bombers? Or if we were to ask the question in a Genesis 3 framework, what is a talking snake doing in the Garden of Eden? And why is he tempting Adam and Eve? This is a long-standing challenge to the Christian faith. If God is all-powerful and all-good, why does evil exist? If God is all-powerful and all-good, why either God is all-powerful so he could prevent all evil and suffering, but since he obviously doesn't, he cannot be good. Or God is good, and we would love, he would love to prevent all evil and suffering, if only he could, but he can't, in which case he can't be all-powerful. And the argument goes you can't have both. And so we're not left with any other option but to blame God for horrific things. There's actually a legal term for disastrous events that happen outside of human control, such as floods and earthquakes and tornadoes and hurricanes. It's called an act of God. God gets blamed for that. So when you win the lottery or you fall in love, that's not an act of God. An act of God is a flood, an earthquake, or tornado. 
How can God allow such things? If God is all good and all loving and all powerful, why would you even allow these things to happen, God? Now, let's say we framed up the question that way, and let's say, like in the book of Job, if you, guys, if you all remember this really beautiful book of wisdom in the Bible, what if we heard a voice come back, and let's say the voice was God, like in Job, and God started asking us questions about the evil in this world? What if God said something like, well, if we're talking here about who allows what, let's, let me point out that thousands of children are dying every minute in your world of preventable diseases that you have the means but obviously not the will to stop. How can you allow that? Or there are millions in your world who are slowly dying of starvation while some of you are killing yourselves with gluttony. How can you allow such suffering to go on? Or you seem comfortable enough knowing that millions of you have less per day to live on than others spend on a cup of coffee while a few of you have more individual wealth than whole countries. How can you allow such obscene evil and call it an economic system? There are more people in slavery now than in the worst day of the pre-abolition slave trade. How can you allow that? Or there are millions upon millions of people living as refugees on the brink of human existence because of the wars that you indulge in out of selfishness and greed and ambition and lying hypocrisy and you not only allow this, but you collude in it, fuel it, and profit from it. And then we might say, like a teenager, well, I never asked to be born anyways. I never asked to be born in this world. This wasn't my plan. And why did you come up with a world like this anyway, where the potentiality of this kind of evil was even a possibility? And now we're full circle into what David Bazan was singing. Have you rigged this whole thing? Did you set up a riddle that you knew we couldn't solve? Did you push us when we fell? See, we have a problem here, and it's the problem, of course, of evil. Now, you may or may not know, but we are actually also very culpable in the evil happening in the world. And we need to own that. We really need to own that as, as human beings. We are, we are culpable. Many of us spend money on products that were made by slaves, whether our clothes or technology. Many of us buy food and eat food of tortured animals who live life of horrible existence before they are slaughtered, drained of their blood, and packaged neatly in your grocery aisle, or the assembly line cooked for your pleasure. Or how because of the way we were treated and hurt as child, as children in development, you now hurt and treat your families and spouses and friends the way that you do, and the evil continues. See, we all know too well about the evil and how we can easily get rid of it because evil is in us. The author and novelist Alexander Solzhenitsyn says this, if only there were evil people somewhere insidiously committing evil deeds and it were necessary only to separate them from the rest of us and destroy them, if only. But the line dividing good and evil cuts through the heart of every human being. And who is willing to destroy a piece of his own heart? See, we would, and I don't know if you ever had this, maybe this thought, maybe you were a lot younger than, like, why can't we take all the evil people and just get rid of them and destroy them? And then you find out, oh, there's evil in me. See, the Bible teaches about this really early on, on like page three. It says that this, very, this is very much the human reality. 
The way the Bible puts it is that humanity, through willful rejection of trust in God and his goodness and his authority, we have entered into what's called sin or disintegration or vandalism of the shalom God created. And this sin has invaded every human person. It's a disease. And it distorts and affects every dimension of our personality. This is spiritual, physical, mental, emotional, and social. It pervades the structures and the conventions of human societies and cultures, our politics. We're even shown that it affects creation itself, that creation groans to be redeemed. And so it doesn't take much to stop and realize that the evil we so much wish God would prevent or punish and get rid of in this world is right inside of ourselves. So it wouldn't be wrong to say that the problem of evil is also the problem with us. That the vast amount of suffering and evil in the world can be explained in relation to human evil, either directly or indirectly, what we do. However, that still doesn't answer the question of the randomness of tragedy. Why do some people get lung cancer who've never smoked in their entire lives? Why do innocent children die in tsunamis or earthquakes or in the womb? And it also doesn't answer the question, why, why is the world even set up the way, the way it is where this kind of stuff is even a possibility? And now we're into Genesis chapter 3. So turn there, if you have your Bible, turn to Genesis chapter 3. Now, you have to remember, Genesis 3 is not where the Bible starts, now, it's kind of where I'm starting the sermon, but I taught a lot about Genesis 1 and 2. So the Bible doesn't start with the fall. It starts with a good creation that God creates good. We'll frame this up next week. God keeps repeating it's good. It has function. It has order. It has beauty. And humanity was placed in it to spread this sort of beauty. And then it says, again, there's no chapter breaks. It says, Adam and, Adam and his wife were both naked and felt no shame. That's just in the end of chapter two. And then it goes right into verse one, chapter three. But again, there is no chapter break. So this is the next sentence in the Bible. Now, the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? Now, you can read the Bible from cover to cover looking for a simple and clear answer to the question of the origin of evil. And the thing is, you won't find an answer. The ultimate origin of evil is not explained in the Bible. It seems that the Bible compels us to accept the mystery of evil. And I want to talk about why this is and how the Bible does this. This is a very, very important thing to understand as you start studying the Bible. I want you to think about this. Why was it written like this? And the first answer to that question is, the Bible, as we, as we talked about week one, is very, very good literature. The Bible is good art. It's truth, it's life, all of that, but it also is to be taken literarily. We take it in as really good literature. And literature, good literature, good art, never gives up all its secrets on, upon first read, ever. You're supposed to ponder it. It leaves things out on purpose till you ask the thing questions. You're like, wait, why, why, why the snake? Now, if you're in here and you're thinking, these Christians believe really weird things, a little inside knowledge, we think it's weird too. <laughs> and you're supposed to think it's weird. 
That's why it's in there. When you read, they were naked and ashamed, and like, now a serpent was more crafty. And then the serpent starts talking. You're like, what? You're supposed to think that. You're supposed to ponder, what in the world is a snake doing in this garden that talks? As good literature, it leaves these things open on purpose. It disrupts you on purpose. My wife and I just recently watched the movie Tar that, came, that was up for an Oscar last week that didn't win. Kate Blanchett plays a, a conductor of a, of a symphony. And um, if you've seen, now by the way, I'm not recommending this movie. Sometimes I'll mention movies and you'll go watch them and you're like, Dave has really bad taste in movies. <laughs> I'm not recommending this movie, okay? I'm just saying this movie is good art. I'm not saying it's a good movie, I'm saying it's good art. <laughs> and here's why you know it's good art. When the movie ends, you're like, did the movie just end? <laughs> no way. I, we, Ash and I looked at each other like, no. That cannot be the end of the movie. See, this movie, like good literature, like good art, you cannot understand it upon first watch or first read. You cannot. You either have to rewatch it five or ten times, or if you don't have the time, then you have to read a think piece on it, but you can't just accept it. You, it, it, it is so much more, it's so deeper than, than, than you can do in first, a first watch. Like, was Kate Blanchett's character evil, or was she just misunderstood? You have to think about that as you rewatch the movie. Is the movie about the righteousness of cancel culture and how good cancel culture is to flush out people who have been doing evil, or is it a critique of cancel culture. Is, the, is this a musical drama because it's a beautiful drama and it's a beautiful movie and it has beautiful music or is it a horror movie? Why does the third act completely change the genre of the film? Why does the editing change and the camera work change? Why? You're supposed to ask these things. You're supposed to ask these, things, these questions and you're not supposed to get it on your first try, you keep at it. This is the way good stories and good literature and good art is done. And if you go to the Bible and you're like, I, I should be able to understand this upon first read, you don't know how to approach good literature. You're supposed to ponder it and read it and reread it for years and years and years. Now the difference is, um, the Bible gives us a metaphysics, uh, ultimate reality on which to base our life. We'll say more about that next week. But we're told about the entry of evil into human life and experience right here in Genesis 3. But if your question is, where does the snake come from? And why is he tempting humanity towards evil? We're not told that. Evil in the form of this snake seems to show up unannounced, already formed, without explanation or rationale. And you're supposed to ask why. We're supposed to think about that. Is it because that's the way evil shows up in our lives as well? That evil shows up unannounced, already formed, without explanation, and sometimes, most times, without any rationale? Is this how suffering happens? We're not told why he was more crafty. We're not told who taught him how to talk. I want to know that. How did he learn how to talk? We're not told that. And if you think that Christians are particularly weird for believing in this stuff, you're, you're supposed to read it and going, wait, this stuff doesn't happen. 
This is weird. Snakes are not supposed to talk. And so that leads us deeper into the text. All we observe from this scene is not right. Snakes aren't supposed to talk. We also observe from this scene that this snake is not God. And the snake is not another human being, meaning evil wasn't a part of God's, wasn't a part of God, nor a part of humanity or what it means to be human. We also observe that this snake comes from within creation, but was not a regular animal since it talked. Therefore, what we know about evil is that it comes from within creation in some sense, but not from human creation, meaning it's not in humanity. We were once without sin. So the only other created beings capable of such thought and speech are supernatural beings. Now, if you were off the bus before, you're definitely off the bus now. <laughs> you were like, wait, wait, supernatural beings? And you're talking about, super yes, supernatural beings. This is actually what we find later on in Scripture. As you're reading, remember, this is a story that continues to unfold and unfold and unfold. And when you get to the very last book of the Bible, the Revelation, Revelation 12, 7 says, Then a war broke out in heaven, and Michael and his angels fought against the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought back. But the dragon was not strong enough, and they lost their place in heaven. The great dragon was hurled down. Here it is. That ancient serpent called the devil, or Satan, who leads the whole world astray. We're not told in the very last book what or who that was. To the, think about that. We don't know who that was. Who, what is that? Who is that? Who's a talking snake? We don't know to the very last book of the Bible. So the question is, what is he doing there? And for that, we have no answer. But it seems that the creation narrative unfolds in a larger unfolding story. It's like how Star Wars started with A New Hope. Like, it kind of already started, there's already these other films, but they haven't been made, but we're, we're dropped here? Like, what? why here? Like, we're dropped, and Genesis, in the beginning, it's the beginning of humanity, but it's not the beginning of the story. The story is actually already going on, and humanity's story starts here. So, it seems that the creation narrative unfolds in a, a larger story. Our story, the one of God creating humanity and our world that's shalomed, full of potential and beauty, we are created in God's image to reflect God's creativity and love and peace and goodness and to spread that goodness all over the world. This is, by the way, the Bible's metaphysics. Again, more on that next week. It says this in Genesis 1.27. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. Remember, this is chapter one. There's no, there's no evil here. God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase the number, fill the earth and subdue it. Now, that word subdue is a clue or a hint on what's actually going on here. This word is a warfare word. It's a conquest word. And the question is, what in the world is it doing here? In a shalomed world that God made, an ordered world, what is a conquest warfare world word doing here? And it seems that our story is dropped into an already bigger story in progress that we are given hints of later on in Scripture that there is a cosmic, heavenly war already in progress. And God has created us and our world to bring about good and the beautiful 
to shalom the planet with him, but the serpent got in and led the whole world astray, which brings up all kinds of questions like, when did this happen? Why did supernatural beings turn and become rebellious? Were the supernatural beings themselves tempted by something evil the way that the serpent tempted Eve and Adam? Where did the evil come from that led supernatural beings to fall and who, who then led humans to fall? And the Bible doesn't give clear answers. He, some hints, but no clear answers. And, the, and scholars believe that there are two reasons, two main reasons, why God doesn't use the Bible to explain the origins of evil. Why doesn't the Bible explain the origins of evil? Two, two reasons that scholars have come up with. The first one is this, because evil makes no sense. Evil makes no sense. And the second is, God doesn't waste time explaining evil. He is preoccupied with overcoming evil. This is what you find in the scriptures. Look at the first one, makes no sense. Human existence starts with Adam naming animals. Again, you're probably going, this is such a weird book. But think about it. Think about this. Ponder this. You're supposed to ponder this. That this, the dimension of being made in the image of God that would mark us from creation on is this. It's to name, investigate, understand, and explain created order. This is Adam naming the animals. It's naming, investigating, understanding, explaining created order. And then by understanding something, to create and shape and care for this order. This is technology. This is tech. This is how science works and medicine works and astrology works. We learn something, we name it and explain it and put it together with other things to move humanity forward or in technology to make a ton of money. This is what we do. We name things, we explain them, we put them together, we make order out of them, and then we move humanity forward. This is what it means to be human, to find reasons and purposes for things, objects and materials, to explain them and why they're here and what they're for. We have an insatiable desire to organize and order the world in the process of understanding it and to find meaning in the world. But when we encounter the phenomena of evil, like millions of people dying in a global pandemic or millions in death camps or a child of a loved one dies or we try with, at that point we try with all of our human skill to explain evil, but it doesn't work. It never really works. So the conviction of scripture is this, evil makes no sense. Now I've often thought, why does our human heart desire the why behind evil and suffering so badly. One reason is maybe it's because we can, we can assign blame. If we can explain evil, then we can, put, we can assign blame. Oh, it's that person's fault. It's that thing's fault. We just want to assign blame. We want to like, that's, that's the reason why. Or so that we can feel like we're excused from compassion. Because when we find out who's to blame then we can like excuse ourselves from having any sort of compassion. It's like if someone gets lung cancer, you're like, oh my gosh, have you ever smoked? Yeah, I've smoked two packs a day for, and since I was 12. You're like, kind of had that coming. 
And it kind of allows you to like distance yourself to go, I don't have to be that compassionate because you kind of did this to yourself. But when we don't understand it and it comes from nowhere, it draws us into compassion. So this is exactly what happens in John chapter 9 in the passage we read at the very beginning. In John 9, the disciples who thought the world was ordered like cause and effect, everything has a reason. So they, they saw a man blind from birth, and the disciples said, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Who did it? Who's to blame? This is what they wanted to know. Whose fault is it? And Jesus says, neither. That's not how this works. The man is there so that the works of God might be displayed through him. And then, usually we stop there, but you have to keep reading. Look what Jesus says next. As long as it is day, we must do the works of him who sent me. Night is coming when no one can work. While I'm in the world, I am the light of the world. You know what Jesus is saying there? Get to work. Get busy with ministry. You're trying to explain why this is happening. How, why is this man born blind? Get busy with doing ministry in my name. Get busy starting to touch people's eyes in the name of Jesus. Start bringing the name and my name and my rule on earth as it is in heaven. Start to work toward restoration. Start to work to get things done to move this forward. The other reason scholars give to why God doesn't use the Bible to explain the origins of evil is because God doesn't waste time explaining evil. He's preoccupied with overcoming evil. That is the, that's like the movement of scripture. That's the heart of scripture. God is moving to overcome evil, to restore humanity back to, its, to our place. See, evil is not there to be understood. It's there to be resisted and ultimately expelled. Now, if you have a Bible, I want everyone to turn to Mark chapter 4. Turn to Mark 4, verse 35. And I'm not going to read this. I want you to see this. I want you to see this movement because the way that Mark writes this whole section here is really, really important to this overcoming evil thing that God is doing in the world. And he's doing that ultimately through Jesus. And so Jesus, it says in 1 John that Jesus was revealed to destroy the works of the devil. And so when Jesus shows up in the world, he's, 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 just, he's going after everything that pulls humanity apart, anything that would come against humanity. So look at verse 35. You see there's little subheadings. Jesus calms the storm, and then Jesus restores the demon-possessed man, and then at the middle of chapter five, Jesus raises a dead girl and heals a sick woman. Now, the way that Mark is telling a story is this. In just one and a half chapters, all the evil that plagues humanity is dealt with by Jesus. The first is a storm, natural disasters. The disciples were in a boat with Jesus and a huge squall, hurricane-type thing happens on the Sea of Galilee. And the disciples, who are skilled fishermen, they knew their way around a boat, are like, we're going to die. Where is Jesus? And Jesus was asleep in the boat. Kind of cool. He was asleep in a boat during a storm. So they wake Jesus up, and they ask Jesus this very, very important question that starts this whole section. Don't you care that we were about to drown? Don't you care? Jesus stands up rebukes the wind and the waves, immediately it's perfectly calm. And he's like, why do you have, you still have no faith? So right after that boat ride, they go over up to the, to the, 
to the Gerasenes to where there's a dem demonic man in the tombs. And by the way, Jews don't go in tombs. Rich, you'd be unclean if you did. But Jesus goes after this man who has so many demons in him that when Jesus asks, what's your name? The demon answers and says, legion, for we are many. A lot of demons. And so much so that they could not restrain this man. They put him in tombs. They, put, they shackled him, but he would break the shackles. And he had to live outside of the city. They completely removed him from society. So you have natural evil, demonic evil, and even societal evil happening here. And then Jesus restores this man, casts out the demons. He becomes in right mind. And he tells him to go back and tell people about what he's done. And then... Right after that, the next, very next story, a man named Jairus goes to Jesus and says, my daughter, who's 12 years old, is sick and is dying. Could you please come and pray for her? And Jesus says, yes, and they're on their way there. And I often put myself in this father's shoes, like if this happened. As he's there, someone touches Jesus' garment and gets healed. And this older lady who the text says, has an issue of blood. She's been bleeding for 12 years and can't get well. She's seen every doctor, spent all her money, and is getting worse, not better. Touches the hem of Jesus' garment and is healed. And Jesus could have just kept on going because, like, hey, she's healed. She's done. But he stops. He's like, who touched me? And the disciples are like, literally everyone. Everyone's touching you right now. He's <laughs> like, no, 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 no. Power. Someone touched me and got power. Who was it? And this lady has to confront Jesus like it was me. And Jesus wanted to make sure that your, your faith has made you well, not superstition in my garment, but your faith has made you well. Faith in me. Okay, so at that point, someone walks up and says, Jairus, your daughter is dead. Don't bother the teacher any longer. Okay, so the way that Mark is telling this story is that every single thing that plagues humanity Jesus is dealing with natural evil in a storm, demonic evil through the demoniac, societal evil through his chains being shackled and him ostracized out, sickness, and then gets to death, and the way that Mark tells the story is that don't bother him anymore. That's the only thing he can't do. Death is where his power ends. And then Jesus says, still take me to her. So he goes, and the little girl is there, and Jesus is like, she's not dead, she's asleep. And everybody laughs. And then he grabs her by the hand and he raises her from the dead with the words talithakum, little girl, I say wake up. And so what Mark does, just in a chapter and a half, that he shows how Jesus goes after every single evil that has ever plagued us as humans and he restores us, he heals us, he sets the world right again. This is what Jesus has come to do. But I guess the question that we're really asking are probably the same one as the disciples in the boat. Like if we're going all the way back to the very beginning of the sermon, we're like the problem of evil, that's my biggest hang up of the Bible and of God. But maybe our question is more like the disciples' question, God, don't you care? Don't you care? And I wanna posit to you, maybe it's not an intellectual problem you have, it's probably a personal problem you have. God, don't you care about my child or my loneliness or my chronic pain or my questions? Don't you care about the people in Ukraine? It means a lot to me. 
or the homeless during rainy season. This means a lot. Don't you care? I'm doing what I think I need to do, but it's not enough. Why don't you do something? And these things matter to us, and it doesn't seem like they matter to God. Thomas Merton, a Trappist monk, in his book, No Man is an Island, said that suffering merely accepted does nothing for our souls except perhaps to harden them. When we go through extreme suffering, it does nothing for our souls just to say, that's life, and accept it. He says, when if we go through life saying that's life, like, hey, that's the way life works. People war, people fight, there's storms. That's the way life is. That sort of view of things will harden your, have been told you that it'll harden your skin, but actually it'll harden your hearts. It'll harden your souls. If we're told it toughens us up to realize this is life. Very stoic philosophy. It makes us stronger, but actually it hardens our soul. Our pain and suffering, merely accepted, can actually dehumanize us. It can turn us into animals. So I guess what I'm saying is that the fact that you wrestle with this question and you haven't accepted an answer yet is a good thing. The fact that this question is still alive for some of you and you're still pressing forward and you're still here is a good thing. Merton would have us know that it's not mere endurance or self-denial that makes suffering and pain good for us, but the opportunity for us to turn to God. What, what these questions should do, what suffering should do, what these things should do should turn us to God. But again, what we, what we try to do, and this is uh, Robert Mulholland, when he talks, he's spiritual formation, and he was on staff at um, Asbury um, Theological Seminary. He said that what, what the scriptures are trying to do to the human life is to break through the crust that we put on ourselves and around ourselves to, to protect ourselves, to insulate ourselves, to like, to keep like self-protection from anything that would like really mess up our, the way that we see the world. And so we want control. And so the reason, a lot of the reason why we want to understand evil and understand it is because we want to understand it and control it. But with a thing like evil, you can't control it and you can't understand it. And so the only thing left to do is to turn to God and trust. And this is the hardest thing to do. If you've ever read the book of Job, this is the, this is the book of Job. Job goes through tremendous suffering. And the whole book is the, who did this? Why did this happen? And everyone has an opinion. Even Job has an opinion on why this happens. But in the end, finally, God speaks. And he says, everyone was wrong except for Job. Which is strange because we know Job, even in his book, had, had a little bit of wrong theology about God which is why God had to correct him. So what does it mean that by saying Job was not wrong, that Job was righteous through it all, through all the suffering, Job was righteous? What does it mean? It means that through it all, Job never stopped praying. When he complained, he complained to God. Not about God, to God. You have a whole book of Psalms that, that, that do that, by the way. When he doubted, he doubted to God. When he lamented and screamed and yelled, he did it in God's presence. No matter his agony, he continued to talk to God. Job's suffering and questioning didn't drive him away from God, but drove him towards God. And in that, Job was righteous. And so the, 
The thing that, that the scriptures are trying to do, even with a question as thorny, as, as intellectually knotted as the problem of evil, what God is doing and what scripture is doing is drawing us to trust. Drawing us to trust. Do you not have faith? Would you stand with me as we pray? Mm-hmm.